Today on Ag News Daily. The marketplace in Japan for specialty isn't necessarily a, uh, a huge growth uh, space. It's, it's, it's a mature market. It's a stable market, but it really doesn't fluctuate a ton. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Delaney Howell here on the Ag News Daily Podcast, joined by my co-host Mike Pearson, who is coming to us from the Commodity Classic in San Antonio. Darn right, Delaney, down here in sunny Texas. I tell you what, this is the first time I've been to San Antonio and actually seen the sun. It's great. Temperatures are 60-plus degrees. I'm talking to growers from all across the country. Just had a couple Canadians drop by. Everybody is getting their chatter started about what's to come this spring, and there are guesses all over the place about acreage and crop rotation, but you can tell men and women are down here getting geared up for 2020. Well, are you, what are you hearing from folks? Are you hearing anything new or interesting to share? It's the conversations that we've had so far this morning have been a lot of wait and see. We're all watching, of course, today's market, big move down to kick off the day. We saw beans down 14 cents at the open. Corn's been lower all day. It's got everybody feeling a little oh, on edge, I would say. It, beans came back, so we'll cover that when we get to the markets here in just a little bit. But the overall sentiment is, Nobody's making any huge acreage shifts. I haven't heard anybody going, no, we're going all corn this year. We're going all beans. Most folks are sticking fairly conservative with their rotations. They want to just see what happens with weather. Everybody was beat down by 2019, either spring or it got hot in the summer or it was fall and getting crops out. We spoke with a grower from uh, central Illinois who still has 600 and some acres of corn in the field. And he's frustrated. Yeah. No and kidding. back in Illinois, we know the similar story in North Dakota, South Dakota, all across the northern plains. It's just been a really, really tough year. Folks are, are just, I think, happy to be somewhere warm and looking towards the future, Delaney. Yeah, you know, Mike, another thing folks should be happy about is because although the commodity markets have been taking a bloodbath, the renewable fuels industry has not. We saw U.S. renewable fuel prices rise 25% on Wednesday, largely due to the Trump administration's news about oil refineries and they, their small refinery exemption waivers. Interesting. So RINs are moving. RINs are moving, which I suppose makes it a little more expensive at the pump. But it does encourage, again, you know, maybe some of those folks that went offline for a while to maybe go back online and ramp up renewable fuel production again. You know, and that is something I've had a couple of uh, folks from corn growers associations around the country stop by. Everybody's saying, where can we grow demand? Ethanol is a prime location if we can have it make sense, if this administration would actually get on board and stand behind their uh, their commitment to ethanol, which it sounds like they're getting done. They are trying to get it done. We should say that. Well, I want to hit this right off the bat. I touched on a little earlier. We saw a lot of volatility in the market today. We saw it in the ag markets for sure, but where really came home to roost was in the equity markets as Wall Street is growing concerned about coronavirus. That is the overall concern today. We saw continued spread of the disease in Italy. We saw spread in Iran. We saw spread in the U.S. And so, Delaney, here's something new I'm just hearing. Apparently, the Pope could have caught mm. coronavirus. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Uh, You'd have thought that, that it's the coronavirus. You'd have thought, though, that they'd like 
put in extra safety precautions so he wouldn't catch it. I don't know what those would yeah, be exactly. You would think the Pope Mobile might have an air filter on it. Right. Yeah. But I just wanted to make make that mention. This coronavirus thing is continuing to spread and it's continuing to keep the markets on edge. And it is definitely something we are going to have to keep an eye on, Delaney. We're not out of the woods on this deal right. quite yet. Yeah, the other thing I think is interesting to make note of is it's expected to impact about 1% of the population, which, you know, isn't a huge number, but, I mean, 1% of 7 or 8 billion people is still a pretty good group of people. So you're talking 1% of the global population is going to be impacted by coronavirus? That's That's what I heard. Boy, I tell you what, I had not heard that figure but that explains why the demand concerns are there. That is a lot of people. It is a lot of people. Well, Delaney, I also want to say, speaking of lots, we did have good news. We don't get a whole lot of great news on export sales reports anymore. We're all still waiting for China to step in and make their big purchases. But we did have good news on sorghum. Sorghum sales were huge. China jumped into the sorghum market, and they bought 450,000 metric tons of sorghum for delivery. Sorghum was a hot topic. China was buying sorghum like crazy three or four years ago. Then they kind of got out of it. Well, this looks like sorghum might be one of the ways they're going to jump back in and try to hit their $40 billion Mm. commitment. And this is catching a lot of traders by surprise. Yeah, I mean, I don't even know if that was included in the original projections of the commodities that needed to be bought to hit that $80 billion mark. You know, I'm sure there was some college professor somewhere, but on all the big reports you and I talked about on the podcast, nobody ever mentioned sorghum. Yeah, I don't think they... Maybe China just saw that it was cheap enough since Mm -hmm. nobody saw them buying it and they're jumping in. I don't know what the story is, but I will do some digging and I'm sure we'll find some sorghum producers down here at Commodity Classic. I'll ask them what's going on in their cash markets. That is a great idea, Mike. And since you opened up the door there to talking about China... It appears that we had some folks meeting on Capitol Hill yesterday. And there's, I think this is no concern, but there's split right now going on between lawmakers and farmers over President Trump's trade war tactics. And so yesterday we saw a hearing on Capitol Hill at the House Ways and Means Committee. And basically they were playing down the economic impact of the trade war and called it a major success, while the Democrats stressed that this was not a success and that, in fact, the tariffs have continued to restrict trade and impact U.S. consumers. They also went on to discuss, you know, what should have been done or what could still be done, and it seems that they are very mixed on that as well. Imagine that, infighting in D.C. Mm-hmm. Delaney, who would have guessed? Who would have thought, Mike? I know. And, you know, listeners of the podcast know I've not been a big fan of the trade war tactic, but to come out and say it's been a failure, it's way too soon to know how this thing is going to shake out. I think everybody's getting a little ahead of their skis. Yeah, I mean, I think so, too. And you add in not only the hearing that we saw yesterday, but you also add in then, of course, that Secretary Purdue is still sticking to his story that he doesn't think we're going to need more trade aid here for 2020 and or 2021 and says he's optimistic. So I I don't know, because as you talked about before, is USDA really that optimistic? They won't raise or change any of the WASI report numbers to reflect Chinese purchases. But yet Secretary Purdue says they're definitely going to come to the table and we don't need more trade aid. So eh, a little bit of a two-sided story there, it seems. 
It is. And uh, Secretary Purdue is coming down to Commodity Classic. He will be here tomorrow. I'm not sure if I will be able to grab any time with the secretary himself, but our good friend Courtney Nupp, who works for the USDA, is also going to be here. She's going to grab some time with the secretary, and so I know I'll be able to grab Courtney and get her thoughts on what is happening inside the USDA, and, you know, maybe we can get some inside gossip. Ooh, that'll be fantastic. We love inside gossip. I mean, we're basically celebrity bloggers, but for agriculture, the way <laughs> we are the TMZ of agriculture. Um, I mean, sure. I guess we could. You can call me Perez Hilton. Great. That sounds great, Perez. <laughs> right. I tell you what, Delaney, I am all out of news. Should we rip this bandit off and see what the market did, or do you have some other stories for us? You know, I just had one other quick story because I think this is also going to come up a lot for you <laughs> down there at Commodity Classic, Mike, and that is hemp production here for 2020. We're still really waiting to see how this is going to be enforced, what's going to be put in as far as regulations go for the 2020 growing season. And we had some, I guess if you want to call it good news for potential hemp growers that was released from the USDA on Wednesday, the USDA said that this year, because it's a rollout year, those folks that are going to grow hemp will not have to send in samples to certified laboratories by the DEA, certified by the DEA, which was originally part of the specified rule that was issued back in October. Now they've said you don't have to do this. The other thing they said is they're going to give some leeway on how you can destroy your crop if it is too high of THC levels, because previously what they said was going to happen was essentially the government or DEA or whomever would come in and burn it or get rid of it or whatever. And so now they've said there's some leeway on that, but didn't really offer much more explanation on that quote unquote leeway. Well, you know what, Delaney, it's interesting. If your crop has too high of a THC level, they're going to burn it. That sounds a little counterintuitive. Right. Because if you grow it and sell it, that's what's going to happen anyway. You might as well uh, let the consumer get involved, let them do the burning. <laughs> I mean, it's it's uh, legal in some states, so, you know. It is in Illinois. Right, that is true. Adding a market, letting, uh, letting new uh, growers find a way to put cash into their pockets. It's, uh, it's a different thing. That it is. Welcome to the Hot Rod Farmer Minute. I am Ray Bohax from the Idle Chatter podcast heard on the Global Ag Network. Buying parts can be confusing. There is rebuilt, remanufactured, and new. To make the proper purchase, you need a full understanding of these terms. Rebuilt parts are the least expensive and are of the lowest quality. Most rebuilders only replace what has failed in the part that they took in as a core. Almost everything else is as received. Remanufactured can vary by who is doing it. An aftermarket company will usually replace the failed component along with the traditional wear items. New is new, but not all are the same. Original equipment new means original quality, but aftermarket new often uses poor quality imported parts, but they are new. When you have the choice, invest in either new parts from the original manufacturer or their remanufactured line. It is worth the extra expense. Agriculture runs on machinery, profits on reliability. Please visit farmmachinerydigest.com for more information. Well, I tell you what, Delaney, speaking of putting cash into our pockets, the soybean market did turn positive. 
did have the chance to talk to a pork producer down here at Commodity Classic who looked at the charts. She goes, hey, hey, corn is down. She was thrilled. The rest of us on the production side, not as excited about the markets. What do you say? Should we jump in and see where prices close for the day? Let's do it. All right, folks, as we take a look at the corn market, March corn down six cents on the day at 364 and a half. The May contract down six and a half to finish at 368 even. Looking for soybeans up on the day, a 20 cent range today in soybeans. March contract finished up five and a quarter at 886 and a quarter. May up three cents, wrapping up at 895 even. Wheat took it on the chin. March contract dropped 11 cents in Chicago to finish at 529 and a quarter. The May down eight and a quarter, closing the day at 527 and a half. Livestock also saw heavy sell pressure all day long. That did not lighten up into the close. April live cattle down $1.8750 at 110.47.5. June down $1.10 to finish at 103.92.50. Feeders under pressure. April contract down $1.90, closed at 134.0750. The May down $1.32 half to finish at 135.55. Hogs continued to trade lower. They've been in that weird stair step drop for the better part of this week. No change today. The April contract down $2.60 at 62.55. The May down 245, excuse me, 242.50, closing at 69.75. Can't forget about our friends in the dairy industry in class three milk. That April contract expiring soon was down two cents at sixteen ninety-nine. The March down sixteen cents on the day, closing at sixteen thirty-one. Lenny, you want to tell us who we're talking to for today's interview? Well, Mike, I had a great conversation today with Ben Scholl, who some of you might follow on Twitter, Otto, at Otto Scholl, looking at diversification in the specialty grain industry, which I think is very timely as we see folks heading down to Commodity Classic to talk about just that. As we continue to talk about diversification in agriculture, very excited today to be joined by Ben Scholl, who is the president and co-founder of specialty grain company, Lewis B. Osterber and Associates. Ben, thank you so much for joining today. Excited to have you on the podcast. I appreciate you having me. Thanks so much. So Ben, before we get to your company that you've helped co-found, tell us a little bit about your background in agriculture. Well, uh, I grew up in central Illinois, was uh, born and raised uh, just east of Bloomington in a town called Ellsworth, grew up on a family farm and um, been around agriculture my entire life. Uh, When I was 16, we moved to Kentucky. My uh, father started a seed business and we moved down here and, uh, but have always maintained a connection to the farm. We have a partnership still in the uh, Ellsworth Cooksville area that we have our family farm and um, really had kind of moved away from agriculture and uh, went to school at Kentucky for business, Uh, tried a lot of different things, but kind of made my way back and luckily was uh, able to have an opportunity to go to work for uh, a company called Osterburn Associates and kind of grow in that and use some of the lessons I learned when I was younger and uh, kind of applied it to a different way um, in in the ag space and we've just been really fortunate to kind of have those opportunities to come back. It's funny how uh, folks find their way back to agriculture more times than not, it seems. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things that uh, kind of never thought I would come back and be part of the farm. It wasn't something that really interested me as a kid, but it, you know, it's nice to always have those opportunities and, and really feel blessed that I was uh, able to come back and be a part of 
something that's uh, kind of a legacy type thing. Absolutely. I think a lot of farmers respect that as well, doing the legacy thing on their farms. But when you look at Osterby and Associates, you guys are doing some really interesting things. But for those of our listeners who've never heard of that company, tell us a little bit about the 10,000 foot view. What are you guys doing in the specialty grain space? So Osterby and Associates um, has been around since the 60s and and uh, has had a long uh, kind of long history in the specialty grains. Uh, what we pretty much do is export uh, on the river different specialty products, non-GMOs, waxies, whites, uh, anything that's not 2IC, and we send that to Japan. Um, we've had a long relationship with our buyers over there and uh, operate on multiple rivers, um, pretty much covering Missouri, Illinois, Kentucky, uh, and are mobile and around a lot of different areas. It gives us a nice chance to work with different people, good people, and uh, kind of diversify risks. And, and, and um, so that's uh, kind of what we do on a 30,000-foot level, really. And so when you talk about specialty crops, you mentioned you're doing non-GMO, waxies. Are, are you all focusing most of your attention on corn products, or are, what are your other specialty I guess, branches that you're using? We are pretty much specialty corn. We are dipping our toe in the water this year on some beans, uh, just non-GMOs. Um, but really, we are primarily in different uh, specialty corn product kind of program. And how did you facilitate the relationship to head your products or ship your products to Japan? I'm interested to hear more about that. Well, that is... Uh, really a testament to the people that came before me in the operation, uh, both Lewis Osterber and Randy Osterber. Uh, Lewis started the company and really formed that relationship, and uh, Randy grew it. And I started out with Randy just loading barges for him, learning the quality aspects of, of corn and, and how it, to really deliver a good product. And luckily, it's something that I just came into. It, it really is a credit to the people before me, but, um, you know, I've been lucky enough to continue to grow that relationship with our Japanese clients and, and um, hopefully continue what they started. And I reached out to you, or we, we kind of saw your content on Twitter. You're a, you're a regular tweeter, it looks like, but you tweeted <laughs> out recently that you are starting a non-GMO waxy corn program in Morris, Illinois. What does that mean when you say you're starting a program? What does that look like? Well, we have raised and bought waxy in the uh, Morris area in the past, but uh, as our program continues to expand and, and, and we create more and more demand, uh, we'll occasionally open, open up new areas. We, uh, I had a couple of aggressive farmers that had breached out. Um, it's not unusual, and we're really interested in raising waxy. Um, luckily this year the demand was such that I was able to bring them into the fold and really what I was looking for is just a, a couple other people to help uh, kind of bolster that program and hopefully grow uh, that Morris Waxy area in, into the future. Um, but it's it's a, just a nice fit for kind of where we like to be and where we like to grow. Um, it's not unusual because we don't own a traditional facility. We're not locked to a certain area. So sometimes people in areas that may not have specialty uh, programs or opportunities in their area will reach out to me. And and it doesn't always work out. Um, 
but sometimes we can kick off a new program and uh, in their area and just use uh, local elevators to put through our product and uh, provide some opportunities that might not otherwise be there. Ah, okay, gotcha. So you're basically helping to facilitate producers that are interested in starting their own specialty crops. You're helping them find a marketplace for that crop. Yeah, in a sense. I mean, really, because we are not just in one any given area, if we can find some people to partner with that will help us put our product on the river, um, you know, it kind of gives us the ability to find good people in areas that uh, might not have the opportunity all the time to, to raise different specialty crops. It gives us a, a little bit of a mobility that uh, you don't usually have when you have a multi-million dollar asset sitting out on the river and you have to run all your all your product through that one facility. Yeah, definitely. So, okay, this is a silly question or might be a silly question, but waxy corn, what are the Japanese people using that for? What product does that make for them? Well, it's it's almost all product, waxy corn, without getting too technical. It's just the type of uh starch um, that's found in corn. You have amylase and amylopectin. It's almost all um, amylopectin, uh, 97% or better. And it's it's mostly food products. It runs the gamut on what they use it for. Um, but it's it, it's there's a laundry list of different um, things that waxy can be used for, but it's mostly uh, food starch. Okay, gotcha. That's what I was assuming, but I just wanted to make sure I wasn't assuming the wrong thing. So then I guess no. then when you look at the consumers, the Japanese consumers that are that are buying this product or the folks that are importing this product, does the marketplace seem to demand more and more of this of these specialty or non-GMO waxy corn products in the near future? Uh, I think it ebbs and flows. Japan, by and large, is a very mature market. It's a stable market, but there's not a ton of growth in it. Um, the There's other products like your whites that really uh, kind of swing wildly in terms of demand, price, and everything else. But products into Japan are, by and large, pretty stable, uh, but not necessarily on a huge growth trajectory either. Necessarily a uh, a huge growth uh, space. It's, it's, it's a mature market. It's a stable market, but it really doesn't fluctuate a ton. Uh, I think there's more growth for specialty here in the United States, um, especially in like just regular non-GMO yellows. I think there's a definite market shift domest domestically back to uh, non-GMO products, but Japan's more of a stable market. Yeah, I think that makes sense too, looking at their population. They're pretty I would say they're pretty old or, or an aged population. They've kind of got down pat what they eat and what they consume and all that. So that definitely makes sense. Ben, taking it back domestically, though, you said you see a lot of shift going on here in the United States. How do producers go about capturing some of that shift in consumer tastes and preferences? That's something that we definitely talk about a lot. Yeah, you know, I don't really know. I can only tell you like what I've been seeing, and 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 I think there's other commercials out there that have done a nice job uh, expanding those markets in the la just in the last few years. Uh, in my neck of the woods here in Kentucky, bourbon has been a massive uh, demand space for for non-GMOs. 
uh, as bourbon gained traction and more popularity, it seems like there's a new label or a new brand that pops up every year and and really has grown the non-GMO production in the, in the state of Kentucky. Uh, in central Illinois, where we farm, uh, there's been some programs where they are, I believe, railing non-GMO yellow corn to the southeast to uh, feed chicken and, and create, you know, that uplift and that value add and, and into the chicken. And um, has been a nice opportunity for people locally in Illinois that might not otherwise have it. Well, Ben, before I let you go, hopefully this discussion has sparked some interest in some of our listeners thinking maybe there's a specialty crop that they could be testing out in their part of the U.S. If folks would like to get a hold of you and chat a little bit more about what you're doing and how they can start that, how can they reach you? Um, well, uh, obviously, like you said earlier, I'm on Twitter. I'm at Otto Scholl, uh, O-T-T-O-S-C-H-O-L-L. Um, you can always you can reach me at ben.scholl at osper.com or my uh, office, if you ever want to chat, is uh, 270-713-0541. Awesome. Ben, thanks so much for joining today. Interesting stuff. Oh, thank you so much, Lane. Appreciate you having me. All right. Well, again, a big thank you there to Ben. As I mentioned before, he is a very active Twitter user. So if you have any questions about how to implement or start a specialty grain program in your area, feel free to shoot Ben a message on Twitter. And he is Otto Scholl, S-C-H-O-L-L, right, Delaney? That's correct, Mike. Folks, check it out. And if you're on Twitter, check out Ag News Daily. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just search for Ag News Daily. We were up here. If you're down here at Commodity Classic, drop us a line. I'd love to connect with you. Love to hear what's going on, going on in your part of the world. And if you're willing, get to an interview, and we will talk to you on the Ag News Daily podcast. That all sounds pretty great on my end, Mike. Fantastic. With that, Delaney, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.